You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Du hast aber einen schönen Ball. Aus bestimmten Anzeichen geht er vor, dass auch dieser neue Mord von demselben gespenstischen Unhold begangen wurde, dem bereits acht Kinder unserer Stadt zum Opfer gefallen sind. Wer ist der Mörder? Wie sieht er aus? Wo verbirgt er sich? Niemand kennt ihn. Und doch ist er mitten unter uns. Jeden Tag erweitern wir das Fahndungsgebiet. Vielleicht doch noch irgendetwas Verwendbares zu finden, das uns zur Lösung des Problems näher bringt. Im ganzen Schriftbild liegt ein schwer erweisbarer, aber intensiv fühlbarer Zug von Wahnsinn. Also hört mal, der Block ist doch umstellt. Wenn er überhaupt noch mal nach Hause kommt, muss er uns ja in die Finger laufen. Außenseiter verdirbten das Geschäft und den Kredit. Die Maßnahmen der Polizei, die täglichen planmäßigen Razzien zur Ergreifung des Kindermörders, hindern unsere Tätigkeit in einem kaum mehr ertragbaren Maße. Wir müssen ihn fahren. Wir selber. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Jamie Duvall. Thank you for having me back. This week we are discussing Fritz Lang's 1931 film, M. It's the story of a child murderer played by Peter Lorre in Berlin during the last years of the Weimar Republic. When the police fail to capture the terror of Berlin, it's up to the criminal underworld to do the job. So, Sam, when was the first time you saw M, and what did you think? I want to say the first time I saw M was when I was a teenager, maybe 15 or 16, and I I feel like it was some classic movie channel, maybe even the sort of early years of Turner classic movies, and I knew Peter Lorre because I grew up watching him in Vincent Price horror movies, seeing his caricature in all those Looney Tunes cartoons, and... I was totally unprepared and, you know, it, it sort of immediately became one of my favorite films. And it's one of the films that I've probably watched the most number of times at this point. How about you, Jamie? I was uh, in my early 20s and I, I believe it was the first pressing that Criterion did that introduced me to the movie. This might sound naive, but I didn't have a great knowledge of, of movies from that time period. Uh, and I'm moderately better now. My first thought upon watching it was, my God, the visual language is all there. And I was thinking to myself, you know, how far have we really advanced <laughs> in the intervening, you know, 80 or so years? Because it was so sophisticated and it felt so modern and so many genre tropes that we still have today were established in that film, I felt. I was very wowed by it. 
I think I saw this one at the Detroit Film Theater the first time, though I had an exposure to it before that and didn't really know what the heck was going on. There was a bumper for MTV years and years ago. I think it was the early 90s, maybe late 80s, where it was a Peter Lorre drawing of him, or maybe it was a screen capture or something, and he's got the MTV logo on his shoulder, and he's running away from that, and he's looking back, looking at it. So when I finally saw M... And we have that famous scene of him looking at his shoulder and seeing the M on his shoulder in chalk. I was like, oh, okay, now it all clicks. And yeah, to, to your point, Jamie, I also was definitely not that familiar. And this is one of those films that was done in that transition from silent movies to sound movies. There's a lot of silent parts in here. The silence is used brilliantly. The sound is used brilliantly. They were doing things in 1931 when the jazz singer came out in, what, 1928, I think it was? 27, maybe? Don't quote me on that. And already they're off the charts when it comes to using sound so effectively, bridging scenes, using sound motifs, all of these things that you really wouldn't think that would be possible so early in the sound age, but... Yeah, it's there. That grammar is there. The grammar of the films are there. Everything is beautiful. And I can't believe just how well this film is made, much less how effective it still is all these years later. Not to be a contrarian right off the bat, but I think when you say, you know, you watch a film like this and you can't believe how far uh, movie making came in a couple of years in terms of the use of sound. But I think if you compare this to other films from 30 and 31, it's clear that it's mostly long and not just sort of overall how comfortable people were. Because I think there was this sort of pressure for him to include more sound. And he just sort of, you know, in his author authoritarian kind of dictatorial way, sort of waved his hand and was like, no, this is what I'm doing because this is the right language for the film. And it just constantly amazes me how, and you know, Jamie said this a couple minutes ago, amazes me how he makes it seem just so effortless, like his use of all these genre tropes and even sort of visual tropes that we think of as commonplace, it just sometimes seems like he pulled them out of some sort of magical hat. Yeah, I mean, I always talk about the use of sound in like Hitchcock's Blackmail and how that was initially a silent film, then they went back and added sound to it, and they did such a, a brilliant job or, you know, reshot it to make it a sound film. And Hitchcock's already doing things like when the heroine is listening to a conversation and just the word knife is stabbing her every time it's said and that it that is the isolated word. And so to have something like this where is there a score in M, Sam? I kept thinking because there's so many times where I would expect a score to be, but it's not there. And then I kind of like that it's not there. Yeah, no, it's fascinating the way that you're... And I feel like when people talk about, especially like slasher movies in the 80s, how your brain kind of tricks you into thinking you saw more than you did when it comes to <laughs> violence or nudity. But... He really tricks you, and I don't know if it's just that we're accustomed to hearing scores, especially films from that period, like pieces of classical music. Other than in the Hall of the Mountain King, there's very little music used. And a lot of it is this kind of like incidental street noise, but there's a sort of jarring amount of silence that I think makes it so suspenseful. 
I mean, God, just the use of In the Hall of the Mountain King, that whistling that is going to come back. And then I was noticing, rewatching again yesterday, just how often we have whistles in the film. And that it's not just Laurie, that there are other whistles, usually like some signals or even one guy who's like, I'm not doing anything guilty, so I'll whistle kind of whistle. But to have that whistle be there for Laurie, to have his shadow be the first thing that we see over that murder sign and then also talking about sound to have that great children's uh, rhyme at the very beginning with those kids in a circle and we've got circles coming back so many times in this movie and i love how it begins with that circle with the little girl pointing at the people and doing kind of like a eeny meeny miny mo but with like a horrific little chant about the man in black who's going to come and turn you into hamburger it is fantastic i mean i think what was so startling to me when I looked at it from the aspect of sound was that the sound was thematically motivated. There's a lot of sounds coming from off screen that kind of signal danger, approaching danger, whether it's that tune he whistles or, you know, a a car horn uh, with a girl crossing the street. The sound uh, is, is definitely in service to deepening your investment in the story and the themes of the movie. Yeah, even the use of the man off screen at one point who is singing out that he buys rags and scraps and all that kind of stuff. Not only does that work as far as setting the scene of Berlin at that time, but also kind of like showing that there is a world outside of the window that where Elsie's mother is waiting for for her to come home. And then also showing us what the economic life of... Germany in this particular time is. I mean, this is not an easy time for people, especially as we get further into the 30s. Being from Detroit, I mean, everything looks run down and completely shitty, so I'm not really sure what the economic position of Germany is at this particular time, but then it's like, oh yeah, it was pretty bad at this point. They were really still suffering after World War One and all this, so that there's a guy buying scraps, that there's this whole criminal underworld, it's like, okay, now things are starting to add up. One of the things that makes it worth watching this film sort of over and over again is just watching it once through when you're so fixated on Laurie, you don't really notice those elements like that you mentioned about the guy with the scraps and these little sort of like what you could call sort of economic depression signposts. And to me, the sort of overall theme of the film is this idea that urban life and modernity result in this violence. Like there's this sort of inevitable quality to it. And I think that's really strongly connected to the situation that Germany was facing at the time, which, you know, as you said, even though it had been a decade, they're still recovering from World War One. had this really useless government and also were really, really impacted by the stock market crash in the United States. And so by this time, it's basically right before the Nazis really started to turn the country around, which of course is how they got through and became so popular is because they did make all these advancements in the lives of kind of ordinary Germans. And this, to me, is one of the sort of like, great last snippets of how just miserable life was. And I think gives you an idea of how sort of 
corruption and violence is able to take root so easily because there's nowhere else for people to go. Well, and how fascinated the characters are by it as well. Uh, if you also look at the, chil- the children in that opening rhyme, you can say, well, that's what children do with darkness. They make a game of it. Or, you know, the, the mother, I think, gets a crime magazine. And the the people are constantly glued to the headlines. They they have this this fear, yes, but also this morbid fascination. It seems with cr- the criminal underbelly. One of my favorite things about watching the sort of interplay between Long and Hitchcock as their films kind of develop in the 30s and into the early 40s is the way that they're both kind of equally obsessed with this media fixation on violence as entertainment. It brings this sort of, I think to M especially, it brings this sort of added level of kind of unease when you watch the film. Like in some way, these people have contributed to this. And it's not just something that shows up in the film, but it's something that Long saw every day. I mean, the... The film is inspired by a number of serial killers, but one in particular named Peter Curtin. And there was this huge media circus over catching him and then especially over disclosing his crimes and how gruesome they were. And I think you're totally right. And it's sort of a comment on how kind of repulsive that is. Well, yeah, the whole idea of him writing to the police and him writing to the newspapers, it so reminds me of stuff like the Zodiac or even uh, Son of Sam. I mean, uh, Sam, you mentioned in your book, a serial killer who was writing, I think it was in Lipstick, Help Me, The Police Can't Catch Me or those kind of things. And it totally reminds me of like, you know, Son of Sam, where it's just like, catch me before I kill again kind of thing. And that's so reminds me of what Hans Beckert, the Peter Lorre character is doing here. It's interesting to me, and I don't have an answer to this. I don't know if there is an answer, but it's interesting to me the way that you could see it develop if you follow sort of true crime and media stories. I mean, Jack the Ripper allegedly sent in letters as well. So it's kind of been around since the beginning of what we would think of as a modern serial killer. But I think it's even more interesting to see the way that directors use it because Certainly, Hitchcock's The Lodger comes out a couple years before this in 27. And both The Lodger and M spend a lot of time showing public concern about the serial killer and sharing information about the serial killer by showing things like media headlines and the wanted paper or the wanted poster in the very beginning of M. And I just find that so fascinating. Yeah, and it's obviously well-researched, M, because uh, it does feel very informed in terms of the portrait it makes of the Peter Laurie character and as a police procedural, I mean, the the steps that they take to nab him. And, And Mike, you mentioned Zodiac. Maybe it speaks to how the psychology of the serial killer it has really been the eternal and unchanging because, you know, the letters to the editor, as you said, reminded me of what we see in Zodiac, the criminals getting together and saying, we got to do something about this guy. This guy is, it's hurting us, hurting our business. That reminded me of summer of Sam. I mean, speaking of son of Sam. So I guess maybe it, it also speaks to these have been kind of hallmarks of, of real life serial killers for ages. 
Yeah, and to go back to the newspaper, I mean, the idea of all those people clamoring for the newspaper, the kid screaming, you know, that there's an extra happening. And then I love the way that we go from somebody reading it on the street, it's posted up and they're reading, which kind of also speaks to like, maybe not everybody is, uh, can read possibly, but definitely like that guy is there center stage. He's reading it. And then the way they go from that to cutting to somebody else reading the same story, but we don't necessarily know that it's somebody else until they cut to the overhead shot. Again, this the overhead shot of a circle with all these, I guess, and Sam helped me out here, they seem like kind of fat cat politicians. I'm, I'm judging almost solely off of that one guy's super crazy cigar holder that he has, which is just nuts. And that's one of the things that I think makes this so confusing the first time you watch it is Long draws all these parallels between the kind of upper class businessmen that you're talking about. And yes, that's who I think it's supposed to be in that scene. But he draws these parallels between them, the police and the criminals. And he shows them all almost in the same, like the same sort of configurations, like sitting around these tables, wearing similar clothing. And of course, that got would get him into a lot of trouble because he was pretty much just showing that there's an equal level of corruption in these three groups that on the surface appear to be very different. And really, no one cares about justice at all. They just have their own business interests in mind. That's the really great kind of sociological aspect of the film that appeals to me. It's, I think it's very smart about the formation of a mob mentality, which in, in some ways is more terrifying than the killer that's out there on the streets in a way. Oh, totally agreed. And I think I, I don't want to throw him under the bus because I don't, yeah, I think Hitchcock is an amazing director and I think the lodger is a wonderful film, but I think there are some really interesting differences between the lodger and the way that sort of mob mentality is portrayed and just also the way a serial killer is portrayed versus M where in the lodger, you just kind of get this sense that at the end of the film, the mob and, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this film that came out in 1927 yet, or somehow don't already know the plot, but at the end of The Lodger, this serial killer is found by a group of people in London, and they sort of run after him, and he winds up being apprehended after this sort of sequence where the suspected male protagonist is kind of almost killed by the mob. But the way that Long handles the mob is so much more elegant and kind of complicated because he draws you as a viewer into their activities. And it's not just this sort of violent group pushed to the brink that becomes kind of monstrous and horrifying. It's these people who are making very calculated decisions. And even if you find them distasteful, you understand long helps you understand why they're making the decisions they're making. Yeah. And when it comes to the mob, I mean, the most terrifying part of this movie for me is the old man who happens to be helping the young girl. And it's just like, Oh my God, he's the killer. And they all go after him. And there's no talking to this mob at all. It just seems like a really horrible situation that gets very bad, very quick. Some of that, especially those sort of scenes that take place on the street 
are kind of meant to evoke this idea of how in Germany at that particular time, it was so easy for situations to erupt into violence. And I mean, you hear about things happening in 33 and 34 when the SA or the sort of brown shirts, as I think people probably will know them, were kind of running unchecked. And if they saw someone they didn't like, or if they saw someone that was Jewish or who they thought was Jewish or thought was a communist, a street brawl would break out. And I think Long really captures that sense of impending violence that could happen at any time in the city in a way that prefigures a lot of those like 70s and 80s New York films where, you know, just riding on the subway maybe means you could be raped or murdered or stabbed. Yeah, because we are right on the brink here. I mean, because if memory serves, Hitler was appointed chancellor, was it January of 33? So this movie coming out in 31, being made probably in 31 or 30, there's a lot of stuff. And we'll talk about this definitely as we go along. There's a lot of things that presage the Nazis, which are really super chilling, and then things that are directly addressing them, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, agreed. Also, let me get your opinion on this, because there, there are a lot of men portrayed in the film. I mean, we're talking about <clears throat> the societal aspects of it and how the film reflects that. As far as my recollection goes, there are no fathers portrayed in the film. There's an absence of a father figure. It's interesting the way in which he contrasts male and female violence. Like the male violence that happens in the film is rational and purposeful. And it's never really, you know, aside from these sort of few scenes we get of mob violence almost breaking out when they think they found, you know, this, this kindly man who is not the killer. For the most part, when the mob gets together and they decide, okay, all the criminals are going to hunt for the killer and they're going to do X. And they, you know, get him back down for the kangaroo court. And all of those scenes feel so calculated And they're all sort of, as I think we've talked about a little bit, in the interest of business. And this is totally a business decision for them. The women in the film are presented as kind of a weird contrast to that in the sense that they want violence and they want revenge just as much, but it's a totally emotional thing, which in a way, it's like at first it seems like Long is privileging motherhood in some way, but he's really finding sort of this long underhanded way of saying, no, these mothers are, are just as terrible and women are not exempt from this desire for mob violence in any way. And because women aren't at any of these tables to your point, Jamie, like when we see that round table with the fat cats, we see the round table with the criminals, we see the uh, oblong or sorry, a rectangular table with the policemen, it is devoid of any women. But yeah, to your point, Sam, that we end with the mother, and we'll definitely talk about that ending, it does not necessarily say that women are the greatest people in the world either. Well, and I think some of what you said earlier about, you know, Germany still recovering from World War One, that is sort of a loose explanation for why so many fathers are absent. And I think it really speaks to, and certainly some of the children in that opening scene are too young to be the product of men killed during World War One. 
But I think it makes sort of a larger symbolic point about vulnerability in the tenements and how these children are really just kind of wandering unchecked. They have very limited supervision. And the only shots we see of the mothers for, I want to say, the first three-fourths of the film, maybe the first half of the film, are women doing this kind of repetitive domestic work, whether it's making food or cleaning things in the tenement. Like, they're not very warm characters. They don't spend a lot of time cuddling their children or having this kind of, like, incidental what I would maybe call friendly dialogue that Long definitely gives to female characters in later films, like things like The Blue Gardenia. The whole thing it just is so cold to me. Yeah, he really robs us of any real scene of Frau Beckman and her daughter, of her and Elsie together. Instead, they are separated at the beginning, and then that separation just becomes a gulf as we go along. And that whole thing where Beckert takes Elsie and Frau Beckman is there waiting for them. I mean, that is just such a masterclass of editing for me. And the way that we use the cuckoo clock to say that time is passing, the way that we have the dissolves cross-cutting between these uh, two characters, as we have Beckert leading her way, and and uh, it's kind of confusing. Beckman, the the mother, there, you know, doing all of those daily drudgery type routines that you're talking about, and just the, that we see them getting farther and farther, and those amazing shots of the empty stairs, the empty plate the lone ball that's rolling in there, the the balloon that he bought from the blind beggar, and just that caught up in the wires and the, the way that it blows away. I mean, that is just fantastic. The image that stayed with me for decades after first watching it was, you know, obviously the shadow against the wanted poster, your first glimpse of the Peter Lorre character, and which starts off that sequence, and it's just incredible. What amazed me was watching Friedkin's interview with with Long, and he he actually asked him, "Why didn't you show the murders?" <laughs> and I'm thinking, William Friedkin has to be smart enough to know that cinematically, what Long did was so much more powerful than that showing showing a child being murdered. Uh, and Long's reaction was, "The suggestion is more visceral because it stays with you and lingers. You can imagine it." Yeah, I think so. I really love that interview and. To me, William Friedkin, I, I love many of his films, so I'm not trying to talk shit, but I think William Friedkin likes to provoke and he could be kind of a troll. And I feel like that was some of the questions he asks long in that interview. I feel like he had to have known the answer to, but wanted to hear what long had to say. And I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I, I think, you know, every once in a while you hear people talk about how advice for budding writers, whether it's film writers or television or fiction, what have you, is this idea of show and not tell and kind of reduce your exposition, take it out of the dialogue. And to me, this is one of the sort of greatest examples of showing somebody what that means is he uses so few words to convey all sorts of different things in a way that I think is so much more effective than if he had a line of dialogue where Frau Beckman just said, oh, well, 
you know, it's this time and normally this happens. And so where is she? And it's like, instead of some woman harping about how her daughter is late, it becomes so much more anxiety inducing. And I think the balloon is the same way because it's also, I don't know if this is just me, but it's especially horrifying because it's a child shaped balloon. Like I, why would you even have that? When that balloon basically becomes Elsie later on, which I find to be just a, a terrific thing that they bring back that same type of balloon. I wasn't able to find out if that was sort of a common, I, I don't even really know where you would research that other than some kind of German archive, but I was trying to figure out if that was a common thing that was sold on the street or if Long specifically said, no, we need some kind of small humanoid balloon to make this extra terrifying. Well, I'm sure there's at least five balloon museums around the world. <laughs> at least. Maybe at some point I'll be able to add balloon historian to my CV. <laughs> One of the things that we've been talking about is the societal influence that the movie reflects. Going back to that Freakin interview, I mean, he does ask questions about that. I find it amusing that Long seems uh, slightly perturbed by the questions. You know, he, he has to kind of take a deep exhale every time Freakin asks him one of these subtext questions. I love Freakin, and yeah, he's, he's the best rock and tour ever. Long, was he generally hesitant to discuss subtext in his films? I think you had to really, I don't know if butter him up is the right word or phrase or maybe catch him in the right mood, but because he has some really interesting interviews with Godard where he does sort of go into things like his motivation as a filmmaker, but he's one of those really frustrating figures who was very kind of stingy with his biography and either intentionally or this is just his personality, there's a lot of sort of self mythologizing that went on. And I think when people phrased questions a certain way, it would kind of get his hackles up a little bit. Like, if you phrased a question like, why did you do this? What's your inspiration? Like, not to make him sound terrible, but or not to make him sound overly pompous. I mean, I think he was a genius. But when people seem to phrase a question, that was directed at like his particular talent versus what influenced you. I think he was more receptive. Whereas when the questions are phrased as to, you know, what, what in the world, you know, sparked your interest or influenced you or like those kind of subtext type questions, I think he was reluctant to answer because it shattered some of that mythology. He's a grumpy old man. That's always the impression that I got. I'm pretty sure he was born a grumpy old man. I mean, there are a couple of pictures, uh, wonderful pictures. I think one of him and Fritz Arno Wagner, but smiling and looking sort of delighted. But for the most part, he looks either like he's in the process of yelling at someone or he has this sort of look on his face like he really is disapproving of whatever it is that you're doing. <laughs> well, the monocle didn't help. Otto Preminger had the same problem. Like, you almost have made yourself a caricature here. So we talk about the 
dichotomy between sound and silence a lot. We've touched a little bit on high and low. There's a lot of high shots, a lot of low shots as well. There's some very interesting low shots. But really, the the biggest dichotomy in this movie is the cops and the criminals. And I love the way that even though they're, they are separate, they come together and they are so interchangeable. I mean, to the point where one of the main criminals wears a police uniform uh, in this movie. But the way that they go about investigating the murder in such similar ways is terrific. The way that the cops divvy up the city and they go out and they're looking for Becker this way, then the criminals will do the same thing later on, but to a much more effective way. The emphasis on science I find is interesting, The uh, that they have the guy who's looking at the handwriting in the letter and trying to come up with a profile, even back in 1931, profiling this letter writer. And then one of my favorite shots in the entire world is the one where it's the guy looking at the fingerprints and you have that huge fingerprint up on the wall. For whatever reason, I just absolutely love that shot. The other one that, that gets me that is just, it's chilling as well is the way that the cops, again, divvying up the city, that the way that they will go through the streets and they almost look like the hands of a clock, the way that they're going through these streets. And you get this long shot from, again, overhead looking down, not necessarily God's eye view, but just looking down on them as they go by. And it just, it seems, again, to kind of presage what's going to happen when the, when the Nazis take over, because it just seems very methodical, very cold, and the way that they're trying to flush out the criminals, just, it, it really got to me. On some level, watching this is a little bit frustrating, because he gets so many police procedural tropes in their sort of purest, most elegant form in one go. And it's it's kind of, and I, I love a lot of crime thrillers. I love a lot of horror films that edge into this territory. I mean, I love I love police procedurals, but on some level, when you watch this, you're like, well, what more can you really do? <laughs> and I think that's why so many of these visual tropes get used again and again. But I agree with you that that scene with the giant fingerprint, it is sort of illogical, but it's one of the most beautiful shots in the movie. I, it, I love it so much. And I love after they raid the criminals, love might be too strong of a word, but that dolly across all of the things that they confiscated from the criminals and the way that they laid them out. And then that is mirrored again later on with the, uh, the criminals themselves and the way that the beggars have lined up all of the cigarette butts and cigar butts to, to, to have like their booty. And then we have a room for the criminals again, where it's like, we have taken all of these different, you know, half a sandwiches or these scraps that society has left for us. And the way that they have this whole enterprise going of here are all these different things that people have left that we have taken. And those shots, the shots of the things laid out from the criminals, the things that the beggars have laid out with the cigarette butts and the sandwiches and the cheeses and all these things, so chilling when you know what is going to happen in a few years at all of the concentration camps and you get those rooms of, here's all the eyeglasses, here's all the luggage, here's all the teeth, you know, those kind of things. And it just... I don't know if it's just a German thing or what, but the way that they do that and then you know, like, oh yeah, in just a few years, this is going to be a whole different thing really just made my blood run cold. 
Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I So I don't actually know if I've mentioned this yet, but I'm writing a book on M that will be out this summer. But for my book, that this was one of the elements that I struggled the most to write about because... I feel like, you know, he made the film in 3031. So you should be able to write about those scenes without mentioning the Holocaust, but it's impossible because they're so, like you said, recurring. And it, it's, I, I don't know, I, I don't think you can really write about them in a way or talk about them separately from that. And now watching as, you know, contemporary viewers, and they just... I feel like they're so chilling, partly because one of the themes of the film is that city, the city and the sort of different kind of governing bodies of the city, the criminals being included in that, and just the sort of general city apparatus, which, you know, is also a subject of things like Metropolis and his Dr. Mabuza films, but it's inherently dehumanizing and reduces people to objects, which is a theme that he refers to often, especially in those early films. And even in his later film noir movies made in the U S in the forties, but you could talk about it as being that in a way that, you know, has its most extreme example or sort of extreme expression in the Holocaust. It reminds me, I'm trying to remember which film we covered on Chuck Timber last year. I think it was The Fifth Horseman is Fear, where our main character goes into a, a whole place that is just all of these catalog things, and you get that incredible shot of him in front of the entire wall of all the different clocks that have been confiscated. And it's just, you know, it's there. You have to talk about it. And I, I feel for you as far as, like, this is 31. I shouldn't be talking about the Holocaust because it has yet to come, but... It just the echoes of it are so loud and so long. Yeah, and I've I've definitely read a lot of other kind of historians and film critics who get sort of pissed off and say that, you know, to talk about Long as anticipating the Holocaust or anticipating some of the other actions of Nazi Germany is giving him too much credit and it's coincidental. And it's like, you know what, maybe chill. Like this is how people are gonna see it and you can't deny that there's some sort of relationship, at least even in a visual sense. For movies to live, it's valuable to contextualize it in a, in a way that you you can understand it today, uh, that you can interpret it today. Uh, so I think that's totally valid. Well, it doesn't help, too, that we know that our main criminal, the character that we'll call the safecracker, we know that he will continue to live in Germany and become part of the mechanism of you know German propaganda and still remain part of the German um, entertainment industry after you know, Hitler rises to power. So it's just like, okay, that seems to lend his character more of a Nazi edge, if that makes sense. Well, I think this movie starts to get into probably in an intentional way, considering what was going on with politics at the time. It definitely starts to get into people taking advantage of their kind of situations and this idea of kind of manipulation or collaboration and who's going to survive or maybe even thrive because of their abilities along those lines. And I think uh, Grungen's character, the safecracker is 
definitely in life and in the character was adept at that. He is the most well-dressed character as well. For whatever reason, I feel the need to to bring that up, the way that he has his cane, his bowler hat, his leather trench coat, which again kind of speaks to me of some of the Nazi uniforms that we're going to see later on. It just, he's the most together guy. And then he also has the gloves. And this film, it emphasizes hands so much. I mean, if you look at most of the posters for this movie, it is the hand that marks Peter Lorre with the M. So you've got the hand and usually it's like a blood M on the hand and that we have the safe cracker with these gloves on his hand and so many shots of him with there are at least one incredible shot of him with his hand over the map. And again, this overhead shot of him uh, showing where things are on this map and that hand raised out. It just seems so much like we have the hands over the city. We have the control, which at this point, the criminals do. The criminals are the ones who bring Beckert to quote unquote justice. They are the ones who manage to catch Beckert. They can do all of these things that the police can't. And again, it's kind of like, you know, the, the thugification of Germany is happening right now. And these thugs are really the ones who are in control. I don't think it's at all out of line or unusual to point out the fact that he's the best dressed in the film, because I think Long was very intentional throughout all of his films, but definitely here with his choice of costume and you know, as you pointed out earlier, there's a scene where one of the criminals dresses as a cop. And early on, you have these tables of men who kind of all look the same in a way that makes it really hard to tell which characters were with at first. And clothing and attire is a way to either appear to be what you're not, or in the case of the beggars, in the case of Lori's character, a way to kind of disappear and to make yourself invisible and not noticed. And I also think it's intentional. So earlier we were talking about that character who is almost kind of swept away by the mob when they think he's the killer. And he is also one of the more well-dressed characters. And I think class is something that Long doesn't necessarily overtly address, but that I think is an important undercurrent here. And that was where those high and low shots really came into effect as well. Like the really emphasizing that that man was small and small in the universe and then looking up at that thug. And even though there's not that much of a height difference, maybe just a head between them, the way that they look up at that thug who's going to pound the shit out of that guy makes him seem like he's a giant. And it just seems like these are the kind of people who are now in charge on the streets. Those are the kind of people who were in charge on the streets. Could we clear up, though, while we're on the connection to to Nazism that the, that, that occurred not long after this movie came out? I, I know Long's wife at the time, she joined the party. Uh, and, but Long walked away from it, didn't he? Yes, he did. So, uh, Thea von Harbo was one of Long's most important collaborators in his career. And she was somebody who was a pretty well-known writer in her own right during the, the twenties. And she wrote a lot of novels. She wrote screenplays on her own and in collaboration with Long and, 
this is around the time when their relationship starts to disintegrate and you know, not to downplay the importance of her role in his work at all, but which I think is something that happens often is just sort of people say things like, Oh, you know, he had this screenwriter wife, and then she became a Nazi. But I think she's a really fascinating, fascinating example of the way in which artists during this period, especially 29, 30, 31, 32, the way that people sort of decided what path they were going to take and where their sympathies were going to lie. And she did really well for herself staying behind, but they didn't divorce because she became a party member and stayed in Germany and wanted to stay in Germany. Their relationship sort of ended before that. Their marital relationship kind of disintegrated before their creative partnership ended. Just as an aside, uh, one of our previous guests on the show, Howard Rodman, he actually wrote a fictionalized account of Lang leaving Germany. So as you're talking about uh, his his contributor and all this stuff, I'm just thinking, I know I've I've heard this before. I've heard it in a different form. So it's a book called Destiny Express. If uh, folks haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's really very, very interesting read. And it, like I said, it's fictionalized, but based very much on fact, and it really does a good job of capturing how crazy the world was in Germany in 1933. Well, what's so interesting to me about that story is that nobody seems to be 100% sure of the factual story. Because as I said earlier, Long loved, you know, spinning a good yarn about himself. And for a long time, told this story that after Testament of Dr. Mabuza comes out in 33, Goebbels calls a meeting with him and says, look, this just cannot happen. Like, we can't show this film. It's deeply offensive. So it's going to have to be banned. However, we think you're a very talented filmmaker, and we would love you to come on board and be sort of the primary filmmaker for the Nazi party. And Long said, great, let me think about it went home, packed his suitcases, and left with his Jewish wife on the train the next day. But public record disputes that in many ways, because when their alleged meeting took place, like he didn't leave Germany for months after that. And Goebbels, who took meticulous notes in his diary, often about how great he was, doesn't really bother to mention any kind of extensive meeting with Long, doesn't really talk about how we wanted to offer him that position, which it doesn't mean it couldn't have happened, but it certainly didn't happen in that way. And a lot of historians have, I guess, had trouble figuring out, like, if there was a particular reason or meeting for why he left, or if he just decided, okay, you know, now is the time to go and kind of gradually wrapped up his affairs. People that love to self-mythologize, they are such a bane to our existence as far as people who actually like to do research and find out the real story. He was, I think, a particularly stubborn case. And there have been, at this point, there are probably four or five really great long books. And a lot of those people are academic historians who have had access to archives in Germany and have done tons of meticulous work. But I don't think anyone knew until after Long's death or possibly very late in his life 
that he had a first wife who killed herself and there's sort of hazy circumstances around her killing herself. And some people have speculated that maybe it was a, you know, manslaughter or some kind of accidental death. And so he was really the master of only telling you what he wanted you to know. I wanted to talk real quick about Inspector Lohman, who's played by, and please help me out, Sam, with the pronunciation of Otto Wernicke. Is that close? I didn't realize that Inspector Lohman comes back in the other Mabuse film, The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. I don't think, and I, I could be remembering this incorrectly, but I don't think that's something he does very often is sort of bring characters back. But I do know that it was a pretty beloved kind of trope of the time in thrillers and action serials to acquaint you with these kind of inspector characters who would return again and again. And so I'm wondering if maybe it was sort of a nod to that convention. Well, I do have to say, speaking of detectives and especially literary detectives, once they actually start to employ the beggars, the criminal underworld starts to employ these beggars to find the criminal, the the killer, the child killer, Beckert, I was so reminded of uh, Sherlock Holmes and the way that he uses the underground, the criminal network in order to find things, to have information, rather than just relying on police methods, which I think he knows are flawed inherently. So I actually wondered about that, and I kind of figured maybe that was the influence, but I'm pretty sure that where that really comes from is Beggar's Opera, which is an opera from 1728. And so, you know, obviously before Sherlock Holmes, Beggar's Opera was something that was became popular in Germany and was adapted. And the story is, I mean, Three Penny Opera, which came out, I think in 29, has the same exact plot. And there's another film from around the period, a, a child's film called Emile and the Detectives, which I think is also 31 which doesn't involve beggars, but it involves this gang of children who, in the way of many children's stories, who seem to have no parents, and they just kind of wander around doing whatever they want. But that's one of my favorite things about this movie, is the way that he shows these people that you would never notice kind of coming to life and participating in this scheme. Yeah, that's the thing, is the whole idea that these beggars can be everywhere, and they probably definitely were, especially with the economic times. You see the guy who's blind, you see the guy with no legs, so we're thinking maybe these guys might have been in the war or affected by the war somehow, so it's just this almost wallpaper of beggars, which is a really sad state of affairs. But it's such a clever and fascinating plot device. I mean, even if you watch Three Penny Opera, Emile and the Detectives, and M back to back, they're used in a sort of overall similar way, but Long focuses much more on that kind of realism that that you're talking about, where he looks, he really shows you just how kind of horrific life on the street was. And I mean, it's it's something that I think shows up in paintings from the period, like there's speculation that this Otto Dix painting of a blind man with a dog influenced that particular shot you mentioned. And it just, 
I think it's such a fascinating picture of street life, even though it's, you know, mostly shot in a studio and it just seems so real. Yeah, before I forget, I mentioned that shot of the beggars and all of their booty and the way that they're cataloging those things. And that sequence of that whole criminal enterprise is fantastically shot as well. And I know I just keep layering on superlatives when it comes to this film, and I apologize, but it's just so well made and and just such a pleasure to watch. And that scene in particular the way that the camera moves around the room and it goes, it floats over tables and Sam, maybe, you know, the way that this was shot, maybe not, but the way that it floats over tables, then it comes up to a window and then it actually goes through the window and into another room and it just keeps floating. And it's just like, when is this shot going to end? I mean, this is something, you know, that, that Wells has yet to pick up a camera at this point, if memory serves. And this is something that I think would definitely inspire Wells in the opening of citizen and Kane and the way that they go from model shot to live action, just this is one long tracking, well, some sort of shot going through these rooms and showing just the extent of this guy with his cigar butts going all the way up to this big chart of here's all of the things that we have cooking when it comes to this enterprise. You're talking about, and I'm so glad you brought this up, I think I maybe mentioned his name in passing earlier, but... So the cinematographer to work on this film is Fritz Arno Wagner, who is, in my opinion, the single greatest cinematographer of German expressionism, of German cinema in the 20s and 30s, and I think probably of all time. The kind of experimental work he did with Long on things like Destiny, which is 10 years before this, there's, if you haven't seen Destiny, it's this sort of kind of anthology film with a framing story that it's it's kind of depressing in certain scenes and it's really this sort of morality tale. So the plot is not quite as thrilling as this film, but the visual world is in it will blow your mind even if you watch it in 2019. He makes it seem like candles are floating in the air in this in this room and He just, I don't know how he achieved some of what he did, but people will know him also from uh, Nosferatu, things like uh, Pap's Diary of a Lost Girl. He worked with Long a bunch, and he just, he, he worked on Three Penny Opera, which I just mentioned, and Testament of Dr. Mabuza, I mean, dozens of films. And you using superlatives, I mean, what else can you do? It's such exciting work that, even if you're not somebody who cares or pays a lot of attention to cinematography, which, you know, no judgment. I mean, everybody has different reasons for what excites them about film. But I think with his work, it's hard, and certainly on all of his films with Long, it's hard not to notice, like, how did they do this shot? Like, this is incredible, and it's something from 1931. Like, it feels fresh and exciting that crazy shot where they're in the warehouse and they're starting to kind of corner Beckert and they show a man through a hole in the floor. It just, it's yeah. Yeah. It is remarkable. The the photography in this and uh, you know, it's a, it's a movie of shadows as well. Um, and so, so the way it's lit, I mean, sometimes it's, it's, it, it, sunlight and nighttime is sometimes, uh, indistinguishable from one another. 
Um, it's it's just it's gorgeously shot. Yeah, there are so many times. I mean, we talked about Beckert's shadow over the wanted poster at the beginning, but even when the criminals are planning their adventure, their their whole operation, I talked about the hand over the map, but then you cut from that to the shadows of them on the wall. So we don't see necessarily the criminals all the time in that particular shot. You know, we have been talking for a while, and we really haven't talked about Peter Laurie that much. I mean, Sam, you and I, we've talked plenty of times about Peter Laurie on this particular show. But Laurie, he's in here a lot more than Stranger on the Third Floor. But even though he's not in that many shots, at least in the first part of the movie, his presence looms over everything. And every time he's on screen, it's electrifying and terrifying at the same time. They use him like a spice at the beginning of the film that we know he's there. We know he's on the prowl. And then when we see him, it's just like, oh, wow, we're in for something like that amazing sequence of him pretty much praying for his next victim. And when he's looking at himself in the uh, window display, this whole movie has so many great window displays. He's looking at himself in the window display and then he sees the reflection of the little girl behind him. And I, I've always tried to figure out what that is around him. Maybe, Sam, you know what I'm talking about. It's like a square of all these things. They almost look like bullets or something, though I know it's not bullets. I always assumed that it was like some kind of hardware store because a lot of them look like different kinds of rulers or sort of industrial kind of measuring tools I'm assuming that it's something that Long and Wagner chose because of the way it sort of fractures his his expression. It shows you pretty clearly on that there's something amiss and there's something not quite right. He's he's fractured in some way. And I, I mean, in a lot of those early scenes before he really becomes the dominating present or before he becomes you know, on screen a lot. He's shown in shadows or reflections rather than in these sort of head-on shots that some of the other characters get. It's so overwhelming to absorb how little you really see him, like you said, but he just is such a huge presence, even though he's such a tiny man. And I think it's it's always fascinated me that, you know, we have a lot of these later serial killer films and TV shows that show these kind of physically large imposing figures. And I think the camera in this film goes out of its way to make him seem small and childlike. And like, he doesn't fit in with the other adults. Well, yeah, he's got the baby fat going on big time here. Yeah. There's something that's, it's, it's very strange because there's something almost cherub like about him. And at the same time, grotesque and creepy. I think that it's one of the all-time great performances, actually. And and I think Long knew it, knew that a lot of the perverse power that M has is due to the presence of Peter Lorre, uh, just that face. And it's interesting how such a tremendous performance, and he did a lot of movies, uh, memorable movies, but uh, he was, you know, this this was almost like a sentence for him. He was so convincing in this movie <laughs> that, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I drove, I drove by the house that Peter Laurie lived and died in. And even when I, even when I was looking at the house, I, I had images of the child murderer from M. You know, it, this was something that, 
followed him the rest of his life. Yeah, you and every casting agent in Hollywood. I mean, I think it's something that really frustrated and depressed him. And looking at it in hindsight, it seems unfair to say this, but this is something Long actually spoke about repeatedly that he thought this was Laurie's greatest performance and he would never again approach it in his career. But he likewise said that he thought this was his best film and his greatest sort of technical achievement. To me, that's one of the things that makes Laurie's career so interesting is, okay, maybe you can only have lightning in a bottle one time, but the sort of choices he made over the years and how he eventually just kind of gave in to the typecasting and tried to have a little fun with it, I think is wonderful. I mean, his films, like nothing makes me laugh harder than comedy of terrors with him and Vincent Price. And it's a shame that he wasn't allowed to really kind of explore the range of his talent in Hollywood, the way he was maybe on the German stage, but he just is untouchable here. I wasn't wasn't long uh, eager to work with him again, and Laurie wouldn't have it. From what I heard, Long wanted to try, but I think had some trouble getting projects off the ground once he was in Hollywood. And I think Laurie was sort of maybe a little scarred by their <laughs> by their working relationship on this film because it was you know, his first, he had been on the stage, but it was his, his first like really major film role. And in order to get the kind of performance he wanted long, basically psychologically brutalized him. And and so I think some of the kind of anxiety and frustration and sort of anguish you see in Beckert is an actor pushed to their absolute, a young inexperienced actor who won't say no to the treatment sort of being pushed to their limits. And it didn't help that he was, I think for at least part of shooting on stage. So he was working these like 20 hour days. Right. Wouldn't he go from this to stage and yeah. And and I can't imagine, I mean, you know, I work basically two full-time jobs, but I also don't have Fritz Lang screaming at me when I've been on stage all day. So I, I can't imagine what that was like, but I could definitely understand why he wouldn't want to work with him again. That's my ringtone is Fritz Lang screaming at me. Well, and ironically, then Laurie would go on very soon after this to work with Alfred Hitchcock, who seems like he's kind of haunting this episode as well, because you know, even when we talk about when Beckert is being chased through the streets and uh, by the the different uh, criminals, and we have those overhead shots and stuff, I'm so reminded of uh, Uncle Charlie from Shadow of a Doubt and just the way that he is being hunted at the beginning of that film. I don't think you can really talk about one of them with, at least if you're going to discuss anything involving crime or murder or thrillers, you can't talk about one without talking about the other. And I, at some point, would love somebody to write a book about maybe the sort of contrasting influence, because it's clear that they respected each other. And in some ways, it seems to me like they were influenced by each other's work over the years. The two of them created the serial killer film through The Lodger and M. 
And I think they both kind of created that whole genre. I mean, people talk about how Hitchcock created it with Psycho, but like Psycho wasn't until 1960. And, you know, as you mentioned, Shadow of a Doubt is to me way more, I don't know, I don't want to say better than Psycho. I just am obsessed with Shadow of a Doubt and that's 43. So it's like between... 27 and let's say the late 40s, they're doing, they're both doing all these really fascinating things with the sort of police procedural horror film or serial killer thriller. And like they never seem to give up doing interesting things with that genre. I mean, Hitchcock was still going with Frenzy in what, what was 74, 72? Yeah, and, and Psycho, much like him, it challenges your your empathies. Whose side am I on in this movie? Which is uh, very uh, awkward making for, for an audience, I would think, especially in 1931. It's both in when the trial happens, we start to feel a lot for Beckard, or at least I do. But then even it's that thing, you know, where the car is sinking in the swamp and psycho and you're just like, oh, my gosh, I hope this car goes down all the way. It's almost, you're almost rooting for Beckert when he's looking for a victim. And it's just like, oh, nope, she went with her mother. Better try again. And it's like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I suddenly with this guy? This isn't right at all. He's a horrible person. I shouldn't be with him. But then when he is being pursued by all of these people, I'm just like, oh, man, I hope he gets away. Why am I thinking that? I shouldn't be thinking that. If you watch this as a typical serial killer movie, as we've come to understand it today... You wouldn't expect the killer, when he is finally revealed and put in the corner, to be so damn vulnerable. And and that's why, you know, the director of Lung could have all the sensitivity in the world to this. But he needed the perfect actor, the, the perfect look, the perfect tone of desperation and vulnerability. And that I think only somebody like Laurie could, could provide. That is what makes this film so brilliant is – and so – Pretty much the focus of my book is on how I think this was the first film to have a serial killer as a protagonist. And it's so important because in so many later serial killer films, I mean, probably the majority of them, even when it seems to follow the serial killer, like in any of the, you know, numerous books or movies or TV shows about Hannibal Lecter, it still presents the killer as some sort of monstrous figure. And I think what M does so relentlessly is it shows you the different ways in which he is a suffering human. You genuinely feel sorry for him, even when you can see that he's disturbed. That horrible scene where he says that he hears the cries of his victims. And when I say horrible, I don't mean I think the scene is bad or poorly done. I mean, it's so upsetting to watch because of the intensity and kind of believability of his performance. But I don't know. I just, I think that's, like, I agree with what you were just saying. I feel like that's the achievement is no matter what horrible thing he does, we feel sorry for him and we feel like he's a victim of something outside of his control or it, it, it really is amazing the way that Long is able to turn that on its head from that opening shot where, you know, we see his silhouette to 
the scene in the basement where all you want is for the police to come in so that he won't be executed by the mob. Well, even one of the first scenes that we see when he's not child killing, when he's there in the mirror and making those faces and pulling at the corners of his mouth. And it's just like, is he trying to look normal? Does he wonder what's going on? I love that that silent scene as well, just with him and that mirror. And then Sam, we talked about the lost one and there's a very similar scene in that, which I think he was completely quoting. Well, and I think it's interesting, you know, earlier we talked about how this film really marked his life and his career. It's interesting how the lost one, which if you haven't seen it, um, and you haven't listened to that episode, it's basically his sole directorial effort, and it's shot when he goes back to Germany after the war and kind of tries to rebuild his career there. But it seems like a sort of strange kind of reference to what happened to him after M and what happened to sort of Europe after the war. It's extremely depressing, but wonderful. Which you can say about this film as well. <laughs> I read a biography of Laurie that uh, I think it takes the title of that film, The, the Loved One. It does, yeah. It does, and he's he's been on the projection booth, I think, every so... I, I've been on, what, three or four times to talk about Laurie, and the author, Stephen Young King, has given interviews, I think, on almost all those episodes, right? Sole exception being this one. Well, where is he? Well, I have the author of the Devil's Advocates book on M, so I figured I was doing okay with that. Absolutely. You know, and something something else came to mind. But when you were talking about the mutual admiration between Long and Hitchcock and how with Hitchcock, he can't talk about the thriller genre without relating it to his contribution. That fascinates me. The kind of conversations between filmmakers and the conversations continue today. I, I mean, I was watching a really trashy movie. Uh, Schumacher's eight millimeter, and and there's there's a reveal of the big baddie in that, and he, he's I guarantee you they were thinking of Lori and M because they were thinking this this is like a pudgy loser guy that probably works at a computer repair shop or something, and they even had him like put on the glasses you know the dorky glasses to make him even more pathetic, but fewer people know the movies that existed prior to their date of birth. <laughs> so books like the ones that Sam has written and shows like the projection booth, I mean, they're so essential into drawing these connections because film I, I feel is a, an ongoing conversation with the past, with what has come before and how do we move it forward at its best? That's what film is. Yeah. I felt like a total dumbass when I'm reading the intro to Sam's book and Sam, you, mention i think at least four five six maybe films in a row and i'm like well we've covered all of those but we've never talked about m so i'm glad we're finally talking about m i agree like i love writing about and learning about that sort of relationship between filmmakers so i guess two things one i find it really fascinating when to your point younger generations seem to not you know, go back and watch films from the 30s and 40s, even though they have no excuse not to, because, you know, you could probably you could watch M on YouTube right now. I'm not saying you should, but you could. So there's no excuse not to see it. But 
what's fascinating to me is when you have these kind of visual and thematic references that sometimes directors aren't even aware that they're making because it's something that's just sort of culturally passed down. I think there are a lot of things in this film that have sort of wandered down that path. Like, you know, that incredible shot of the giant fingerprint, which very consciously shows up in Elio Petri's A Citizen Above Suspicion, or Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. But I think you also have shots like that in things like Law and Order, just on maybe a less cinematic kind of visually appealing level. I love the way that that kind of language changes over time based on the work of people like Long and like Hitchcock who are just so visionary and so in- incredible at what they do. Well, it's like if we, if we say a, a catchphrase that's been around forever and I, I, I can't think, I can't think of one right now. Of course I can't, but, uh, and we never think of, you know, where did that originate? Like, it, well, uh, and I, I feel like it's the same thing with our film history. I mean, if it's, if it's iconic enough, if it, if it kind of absorbs into the culture deep enough, it's all, it almost becomes part of our DNA. We, we don't think about it when we put up those references in other films. That's one of the things that frustrates me about some of this sort of newer generation of quote unquote elevated horror directors is a lot of them seem to say things in interviews like, well, I don't really watch horror movies and I'm not, I'm not really influenced by other horror directors. It's like, dude, you do not work in a bubble. Like I can give you a long list of references in your film and even if you claim to have seen those films or not, like when you work in a particular genre, it's borrowing from a rich tradition that, like you said, just sort of seeps into our cultural identity. Yeah. Know your ancestors, buddy. So, of course, I was thinking of uh, Law and Order when they go in and do the fake out with the landlady, the deaf landlady. And uh, the guy's like, yeah, I'm here from the tax office. And I'm just like, you need a warrant to go in there, buddy. Did you hear the sound of the gavel when you when you thought that? I did. This is one thing that I actually didn't do too much research on, but... I think that there's a certain kind of gray area at that particular time in German law and order. So, I mean, actual law and order, not, I'm not talking about a German version of the TV show, but so <laughs> in, in 1931, I think they really could have gotten away with doing so much more like planting evidence and sort of wandering in and talking to the landlady in a way that, you know, Stabler could only aspire to do in our law and order. It's strange that, you know, I mentioned the guy without the legs. We've got the landlady who is practically deaf for all intents and purposes. And then I love the twist of the knife when our quote unquote eyewitness ends up being the blind beggar. And when he shows up and I talked earlier about hands and when he shows up and he puts his hand on Beckert's shoulder, Peter Lorre's shoulder, and he starts to speak from off screen. It is one of those amazing moments. And that we have that reversed later on when the policeman's hand comes in on the other shoulder and touches him there and again starts to speak off screen and we never see his face either. 
so nice that we have that parody is really, really nice. And also that when Beckert manages to turn around and the beggar's there and he's got that balloon, like I said, that balloon has really become Elsie. And it's like she's there in the court with them. And it's just like, you remember this? And rather than this being a balloon, he might as well say, do you remember Elsie? And Beckert's reaction is so terrific and just, I mean, Laurie just nails it. And I love too that we have his performance going on in the foreground and then leading the beggar out in the background. Such a nice use of space there as well. And if that whole cavern where we have this kangaroo trial going on, I mean, it, it's just a, a terrific set and you just feel all of those bodies there and just again, how small little Beckert is at the front there and compared to all of those people who are just there for his blood. And that's, I think, one of the, to me, sort of major achievements of the cinematography is that all of the buildings are these kind of run down depression era spaces. You know, you have the apartment tenement, you have the warehouse that Beckert hides in, you have this kind of cavern, basement cavern that you mentioned. And Long and Fritz Arno Wagner make such dynamic use of those spaces that it's, I think, something that other directors try to do, but don't really come close to succeeding. Just the way that they are able to make you feel claustrophobic or just like between the editing and the the sort of chase sequence in that warehouse, it just, it's all this very strange use of space that feels so tense and oppressive that when you finally get to the open space, it's it's sort of extra disorienting, if that makes sense, at least to me. Well, did you say that they shot this all in a studio? Uh, yeah, I think there are some street shots, or at least shots that were like supposed to be a replica of an actual street. But yeah, I mean, that was definitely his preference, certainly at the time. Way more control, for instance. Well, yeah, you know, we we know that he liked his control. Just a little. Laurie just gives one of the best performances as he is talking about what his life is like being this child murderer. Just so many amazing lines, the reactions, the way that he's using his hands, the way that his eyes are bugging out of his head. It's just, it's incredible. And you really can't top it. I mean, we talked before about, is this his greatest performance? I don't know if it is or not, but this is definitely one of the greatest performances that he ever gave. I mean, I think it's one of the greatest performances that anyone ever gave. I mean, it it's so remarkable, and I know we are out of control with the adjectives here, but it just, it seems like such a, I don't want to downplay his talent at all, but it almost seems like this sort of perfect storm of this great script and this great director and this great cinematographer and this really incredible actor who I think was kind of given a chance to do something unusual. Because even if you look at other films from the period where maybe the plots are focused on urban violence and misery, or they're really depressing. And I I mean, I don't think of this as a proper 
German expressionist film. It happens to be a German film that has sort of similar kind of horror themes, but in German expressionism, you know, you have all these stories about kind of murderers and monsters and destitute people on the street driven to acts of violence. But none of those performances, and while some of them are great, come close to how this just, it feels so real. And that's sort of a lame thing to say, but that at least that's my sort of takeaway for why it's so effective. Is it so believable? There's certainly no artifice in his performance. It feels so, it feels so modern. There's a lot of films from this period that I can watch. They might feel a bit stagey or what have you, but this feels totally modern and relevant and like it's consistently being referenced everywhere you look. And I'm, I'm not even sure the filmmakers know they're referencing it, but uh, it's still so relevant today. And there's this weird commentary that's going on here, too, as far as why the criminals won't turn him over to the police, that they are afraid that they turn him over to the police. He is going to plead insanity. And I think even more than the idea of and then he comes out and he does it again, I think it's that the the criminals don't necessarily see the institutionalization as being punishment enough. And that's why they want to mete out their punishment of death to this person that in the way that the safe cracker keeps saying you must be erased. And it's just like, wow. Okay. You must disappear. It's so again, so believable because everything that long has set up so far in the film is that government bureaucracy, police, totally corrupt, ineffectual, and certainly there's no reason to believe that turning Laurie over to the, or I'm sorry, that's rude, turning Beckert over to them would accomplish anything other than, you know, more bungling. And it's interesting how this shows up, not to bring up law and order again, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not really intending to do that, but I feel like it shows up as a believable sort of common recent plot in police procedurals or even vigilante films like some of the Death Wish movies or things that came after them where there's this very real sense that you as a viewer identify with that this protagonist wants justice but knows that justice will not be had at the hands of the police, criminal justice system, and can't imagine any other option and so takes it into their own hands. And I think that's one of the things that makes this seem so modern. Like I totally agree that his performance is is definitely in the same line, but it just you can understand why they don't want to turn him over. And and you know, unlike the the death wish films that deal with the vigilantism, I mean the 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 criminals and because I think a lot of those guys are criminals uh, in real life, but the, the mob that uh, that surrounds him, they're out for blood. And I, I think this movie recognizes the, the moral uh, queasiness of that. Um, if, and I, I don't know if Long was pro or anti-death penalty. I think that they tried to make it out that he was pro-death penalty in the movie, and he corrected them on it. One of the interesting things and sort of my takeaway is he's not telling you what 
is right and what is wrong. He's telling you why it's a complicated issue. So he makes you understand why we shouldn't kill Lore. And he also makes you understand in this sort of horrifying ending sequence, why even the mothers have, you know, torn themselves out of these domestic spaces and are sort of at the front of the mob demanding his execution in really kind of, I I don't know, for, for me, the first time I saw this, that was the moment because, you know, when, as we've talked about, this is the sort of thing that's definitely just sort of fallen into culture and permeated culture, especially thrillers and horror movies and serial killer movies. So the first time you watch this, you know, anytime after 1950, 1960, there are a lot of things where you can kind of see maybe where it's going, but I did not expect that sequence with the mothers at all, where they're like, no, kill him. We want him to be dead. Contrast that with the mothers there all in black in the very last shot, where it's just like, people should take better care of their children, fade out the end. And it's just like, whoa, like, are these the same mothers that we saw before who are crying out for blood? Yeah, that's that ending shot is brutal. Yeah, between that and then that five judges that come in and we don't see the trial at all. We don't see Beckard at all. It almost feels a little tacked on, almost like the end of Scarface or something. But just that weird way that we go from them coming in to the mothers, that line, and then gone. Yeah, that movie just leaves you winded afterwards. Well, wasn't that last line the the reason that Long said that he wanted to do the film in the first place? I think so. I mean... From what I read, his initial motivation was that he was so fascinated by the public attention given to these news stories coming out about Peter Curtin and Peter Curtin's eventual capture and his testimony about his crimes. And just like the way the headlines were horrified, but fascinated or entertained at the same time, like clickbait basically is what they were is, you know, open page three to find out about how Peter Curtin disemboweled this 15 year old. It's just, I I think from what I've read, he, he just said that that was sort of horrifying, but fascinating to him. And he wanted to kind of explore that feeling more. I saw somewhere that Dario Argeno was inspired by that sort of shot of the th- the ending shot of the three women all in black. And that was part of where he got the inspiration to do this kind of three mothers trilogy. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's believable enough. I mean, considering how long influenced a lot of those sixties and seventies genre directors. Did you guys both have a chance to see the Joseph Losey redo in 1951? Yes. I give it a once over. I was surprised at how short the movie was. Like normally now when we have remakes, they go all out and they always seem to tack on an extra half an hour. And this actually removed about half an hour or more worth of material. So it moved at a much faster pace, though. I don't know if that necessarily helped things. 
Um, cause there's not a lot of fat on Long's M. There's maybe only a few times where I'm just like, okay, you know, towards the end there, all right, you know, the, like the whole idea of, uh, the, the one criminal who's left behind in the interrogation and those kind of things. It's like, okay, maybe this could have been gone. They could have found another way to connect the dots there, but I'm absolutely fine with it, especially the, for all of the horrible things that we've been talking about with M, as far as like the, the actual content, that there's a couple good jokes in there. The whole idea of we're going to take this one criminal and tell him that the guard has died. And then they cut to the guard eating sausages and drinking beer. It's a really nice thing. It's a great laugh line, but, <laughs> but, um, there's not too many laugh lines in the, the Losi thing. And, and, I was really hoping that it would be more of a, like a HUAC or a blacklist kind of metaphor, because especially because Losey was going to leave the country very soon and it was a dark time in America's history. And I think a couple of the other people who were involved in this film ended up leaving the country as well or being blacklisted. And so we're going through some really horrible times in the U.S. I thought, okay, cool. They're going to remake M. They're going to use what's out there now and this fear of communism and the way that everybody is turning against these people. But it didn't really feel like that to me. I didn't really capture that for this film. I don't know what you guys felt. I, I didn't think it was an, an embarrassment. I thought it was okay. I thought it was okay enough. But it, I mean, it did strike me as a, Facsimile, you know, like you're seeing something without the detail or the clarity of the original, uh, which really translates into the artistry of the original. Uh, I did appreciate the scenes in the the Bradbury Building closed the movie. I thought that was a great location. I have a lot of issues with this because number one. I don't understand. So I am a passionate hater of remakes with a few exceptions. I think every once in a while they can be interesting. They could stand on their own ground, so on and so forth. But I don't really understand why you would say in 1951, like let's remake a film about a child killer that was set during the depression, just before Nazi Germany, it just, I I don't understand how it makes business sense, or who they thought wanted to see that film. I mean, certainly, 51 has all kinds of really dark films, specifically film noir coming out around that time. So I just, I maybe that's what they were going for. But it really bothers me even more than the fact that someone has remade a long film, it really bothers me that it's Joseph Losey because I love him and I don't want to ever have to say anything bad about one of his films. And I mean, I agree with both of you. I, I didn't hate it. I don't have anything overwhelmingly negative to say other than it's fine, which for me is like, that's the worst it gets when something is just fine and I don't have anything to say. It just it almost felt like, like, like you just said, like we weren't getting anything that felt original. It just felt like a facsimile of something, but it also felt like we weren't getting a genuine Losey film. Like he was just sort of going through the motions and maybe had a lot of producer interference or maybe was just so afraid of pissing off long and having long come like burn down his house or something that 
it just feels like somebody's afraid to really get in there. Like they're sort of delicately remaking it and not trying to rock the boat at all. Yeah. And you know, you picked the wrong subject. If you're making a movie about a child murder and you don't want to rock the boat, why the hell are you making a movie about a child murder? Really? What we're getting down to here is there's only one person who should remake him and it should be Gus Van Sant or it should be shot for shot. I mean, Vin, what's Vince Vaughn doing? I'm sure he could give even a better performance than. Uh, oh, for know, sure, it'll be really it'll, it'll be really difficult to make him look small in the frame. Though. With CGI, I bet you could do it. You could you could ask Peter Jackson how he made everyone into <laughs> into hobbits. You could Benjamin Button that motherfucker. <laughs> there were some decisions that were made in the M remake that I didn't necessarily agree with. Like I like in the original that once the criminals start to pursue Peter Laurie that he leaves the little girl and she runs off. And instead with this one, they've, he keeps the little girl with him and it's very unbelievable that they would have, he would have her in this little room with him and that she would just be content to play with dolls while he was bloodying his fingers to hamburger as he was trying to pull this nail out and pick the lock. I appreciated the bloodying the fingers and, trying to get that nail out so that he could pick the lock, but I didn't appreciate that the little girl was there and that they have to then keep her in play as far as this goes. Like at least when they're leaving the building and they're going to go to the whole trial location and stuff that they make a real point of showing them bringing her along. And it's just like, no, that she doesn't need to be there at all. They should just drop that whole thing. The other thing that I kind of appreciated was that the lawyer, the lawyer for the Lori character, the Becker character, that he was more of a character and that he was this drunk. And at one point he really starts to skewer the criminals and they're just like, no, you know, hold on. Don't, don't talk bad about us. But I think that in the long film, both the criminals and the police are given equal weight. And in this one, it feels like the police they're a little more rough than they were in the original, but they they don't seem as, I can't say incompetent, they just don't seem like they're nearly as much of a presence as the criminals are. This feels like, oh cool, wouldn't it be cool if the criminals went after the you know one of their own? But yeah, no, not, not necessarily. I'm not sure, uh, you know, watching the remake, I, I, I'm not sure, back to back actually with the original, I'm not sure that it it elucidates anything that the original doesn't already provide. I think it's lacking that conversation that we talked about earlier. And it, it, it might have been worthy had it engaged in that kind of conversation. Again, I feel really bad having to say this because if you somehow are have made it this far in the episode and you've never seen a Joseph Losey film, he is an incredible director and if you want to see one of his films from this period before he left the United, before he was driven brutally from the United States, watch The Prowler. Don't watch this remake. Mm. It's just, I just felt so like, it's so milk toast. And to have a film about a child murderer feel milk toast, it just, I, I just don't really understand why any of these choices were made making remaking the film the choices within the different shots like yeah i i don't know i don't feel worse for having watched this but i don't think i'll ever need to watch it again as opposed to something like 
well, like The Prowler or like Lang's M, where I can watch it repeatedly and still get more out of it, even though, again, it was made in 1931, but it still holds up today as well as it did back then. They're both masterpieces, for sure. When I think of the important work that Criterion has done, I always think of M, because I think M has reached a whole new audience because of their investment in that film. I can't disagree because I'm sure that when I saw it, it was probably a Janus release right before they put it onto Criterion. And I mean, I think they have done some really incredible work. So I'm sure one of the difficult things about, you know, you have limited time to watch new movies and it might not be appealing to watch an older film that requires a lot of historical context, but I think they do a great job at providing that in a digestible way or in a way that seems fascinating and like it's really important to them. And I I totally agree. I I think anytime they release something like this and give it a lot of attention and give it the respect it deserves, it's going to, you know, be just this sort of wonderful discovery for a whole new generation of film fans as, as it should. Yeah. And as Mike said, before at the top of the show, God bless MTV as well. There was something else I was going to ask you. Oh, about the running time of M, because there are several different cuts of it. it, it is it, is the first initial cut? It, is is there missing? Is there still missing footage, or do we have everything from the initial cut? I want to say that there's something that's still missing, and. I'm totally blanking on what it is right now. So I I think part of the dispute about what the actual running time was is that there were slightly different versions prepared for different audiences in Europe, which is a pretty standard thing at the time. I mean, you, you had a lot of instances of directors who would come on to a set and film a different language version of the movie, like uh, Henri-Georges Clouseau, the the French director got his start around this time doing just that. He would go on German productions and basically film a a French language version of the same thing. So I think Well, you know, they they did that that same year in thirty one with Dracula, when they made a Spanish language version concurrently. Absolutely. And I agree with many people that there are some things about the Spanish language version that are superior, even though I feel like I'm about to be struck by lightning as I say that. <laughs> but I, th- so I think the dispute over missing footage in M or the confusion about the runtime, it seems like when we talk about movies from the sixties or seventies or even the eighties that have been cut, it's an intentional decision to remove a scene or a clip that's deemed offensive. And I don't think that's the case with M. I think with M, it's just they decided to slightly edit different versions differently. So I think if there is, and I could be wrong about this, but from what I remember, if there is anything missing, it's just a certain angle was cut out and maybe accidentally not retrieved from a scene or two. But it's not like there's, you know, a whole missing scene or part of a scene that we weren't allowed to see because it was inappropriate. I, I will buy 10 copies of your book. I'll have to find it and send it to Mike and maybe you could post it in the episode link. But there's 
definitely an academic book chapter where the author researched the different cuts made at the time, like the different cuts of the film prepared at the time. And they talk about it in detail and they go down to like, you know, the credit sequence in this version for France is different. And so it shaves 30 seconds off. And so it's, it's all really technical stuff like that. And not like there's some, you know, magical Lorai moment that we're missing as far as I understand. I have a stupid question for you, Sam. Is the word blind the same in German and English? The word for blindness is blindheit. And so, you know, like mortar is super close to murder. I mean, I think some of this movie is easier to watch without subtitles because English is a Germanic language. So some of the words you're like, oh, I know that one. Yeah, because I noticed the blind guys have little signs around their necks that say blind. And I was like, oh, that must be the same in both languages. They're just holding the American subtitles. All right, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show. In a mining town, on the second moon of Jupiter, something deadly is happening. trouble. We're all professionals. I'm sure we are. We've only been here two weeks. It'll get better, I promise. I got nothing more on that incident in the mine yesterday. It looks like some guy just went wacko. It happens here. How often? I don't know. It just happens here. Why? I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't tell you why. Some people just can't take it here after a while. No way it could have been homicide. H- had to have been a suicide. 28 in the last six months. Did you do autopsy? No. Then how do you know it was a suicide? There's no other explanation. When a person exposes himself to zero pressure atmosphere, there isn't a whole lot left to inspect. Something's there, isn't it? Maybe. Try and meddle, I want you to know what you're meddling with. How do you leave? You know, with grown-ups here. Bingo. Marshall. You're dead. If you're the kind of guy you're supposed to be, you wouldn't stick around. That's why they sent you here. Maybe they made a mistake. Still, man.
That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Peter Hyams's Outland. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jamie and Sam. Jamie, what is the latest with you, sir? We're still airing uh, occasional interviews and doing a, a monthly roundtable now on Movie Geeks United. Uh, we've kind of scaled back a little bit while I recover. I feel a little burned out. I don't know how you do it. How, how long has, have you had the projection booth? Eight years. Okay. I've been, I've been doing it for 13, and I just, you know, I just feel like I really have to decide if I want to keep doing it or not. <laughs> and it was terrible to say. But, uh, you know, after a thousand interviews, I, I feel a little burned out. I know that feel, bro. I know that feel, too. Yeah, guys, be my support group. Come on, give me some confidence here to go on. Well, you are always welcome on the projection booth. Well, I love you. I, I, I wouldn't want to be anyplace else. I, I love this podcast. And Sam, how is the busiest woman in Philadelphia? Also pretty tired, not quite burned out, but I definitely have my days where I just want to lay on the floor. My podcast partner and I, uh, Kat Ellinger, we just came out with a new Daughters of Darkness episode on the films of John Haynes, who's this really underrated American cult director. Uh, we also did a commentary on Arrow's new box set about the films of Jose Larraz. As far as long-related news, my book should be coming out in June through Devil's Advocates, which is a series that publishes monographs all about individual horror films. And I sort of had to make the case for why M should be considered a horror film and why it's so influential and so on and so forth. And I also did the liner essay for the upcoming Eureka release of Woman in the Window, which if you haven't seen that, it's a wonderful film that Long made in America and proof that he continued to be incredibly influential throughout his career. Very cool. And you said book out in June? Hopefully June or July. I won't hold you to it, though. I was promised summertime, early summertime. Well, summer goes all the way up to September, so... God, don't say that. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we give helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.